Welcome to Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, history, science, and politics. Today's session will be Designing the Perfect Portfolio. Today's podcast was recorded previously at Stanford at an event to honor my old boss and close friend, Myron Schultz, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics. Our first speaker will be Andy Lowe, who is a finance professor at MIT, and he will discuss his book, In Pursuit of the Perfect Portfolio. Andy interviewed a dozen leaders in academic finance and top practitioners about how to design a portfolio, balancing risk and reward by maximizing diversification. Our second speaker will be Jonathan Levin, who is the dean of Stanford's Graduate Business School. John will explain how Myron Schulz's ideas have shaped academic research in finance and how his models have been applied by investment professionals. Our third speaker is Victor Agani. Vic and I worked together at Solomon Brothers before he left to be one of the founding partners at Long-Term Capital Management. Vic will answer the question, how much should you gamble when you have an excellent investment? Vic's ideas are very important because most of us focus on what to invest in and spend little time wondering how big to bet and whether to increase or decrease the wager when uncertainty and volatility increases or decreases over time. Our fourth speaker is my good friend Bruce Tuckman, who teaches at NYU Stern Business School and is the former chief economist at the CFTC. Bruce will discuss the benefits that derivatives like interest rate swaps and commodity futures provide hedgers and investors. Our final speaker today will be Myron Schultz, who will discuss the best ways to adjust your portfolio if you're concerned about ESG. Some market participants who worry about carbon emissions are selling shares in their polluters. But Myron thinks that the investment managers should first optimize their portfolio and then buy carbon credits to maximize returns while minimizing carbon in the environment. Buckle up. I made this podcast to learn and I offer this program free of charge to anyone that is interested. Please tell your friends about it and have them sign up to receive our weekly emails about upcoming shows. If you enjoy today's podcast, please subscribe so that you can continue to enjoy this content. All right, let's begin today's session with Andy Lowe. It's an incredible honor for me to be part of Myron's 80th birthday celebration. The topic that I'm going to focus on is this book, In Pursuit of the Perfect Portfolio. Larry, thank you for assigning so many chapters. I felt quite bad because you guys had a lot of homework. But I'm going to treat you like I treat my MBA students, and I'm going to assume that only 10% of you have done the readings of the class. <laughs> the book began as a very thinly veiled hero worship. My co-author, Steve Forster, and I both taught investments over the years. We have all of these luminaries that have inspired us in our research, but there's not any reference that we can have our MBA students read about what they would recommend in terms of how to invest. Well, why not ask them what a perfect portfolio is? We ended up collecting these wonderful interviews. Everybody that's featured in the book, we've interviewed on video. So there are YouTube videos that you can see the entirety of the interviews. We were thrilled that we got such diversity of opinions about what the perfect portfolio is. Now, you might think that that's a bug, but we think of it as a feature. There isn't a single perfect portfolio, not that any of us thought there was. The conclusion is really meant to capture a summary of all of the different perspectives and then to bring it down to the level of a non-MBA, non-finance individual to be able to make use of these ideas. Today's discussion is part of Myron Scholz's Celebration Day. What do you think were Myron's major contributions to the field of finance? 
Myron's impact, it's been extraordinary. I mean, everybody understands the impact of Black and Scholes, but my first exposure to his work had nothing to do with options. It was the Cap-M, Black, Jensen, and Scholes. And it was really through that paper that I realized taking a serious statistical and economic approach to financial data could actually tell you about how asset prices are related. I mean, that paper was really extraordinary to me because it had some really deep ideas about the underlying statistics that were not couched in mathematics, they were couched in economics. The second paper that I read of Myron's was by Scholes and Williams about how you can get predictability in asset returns that aren't really there. It's a figment of the way that prices are recorded, the fact that certain prices close at 213 and other prices close at 359. Now, it may seem strange that Myron would think about these kinds of esoteric issues. It turns out they're not so esoteric when you look at the implications from a trading or an investment point of view. I discovered later that Myron was the head of CRISP for seven or eight years. CRISP, or CRSP, is the Center for Research in Security Prices. I would argue that CRISP is really the beginning of big data in finance, that ability to put together all the data sets to allow us to do research. It changed the way I thought about finance, and it convinced me that combining econometrics and finance was a reasonable career pursuit. I have Myron to thank for that. Myron's background is actually firmly rooted in passive investing and efficient markets. He actually worked for John McQuown, often credited with the very first index fund. It wasn't a fund, it was an account for Samsonite Corporation. It was like a $5 million mandate for Samsonite's pension fund. And that is really what got McQuown to start thinking about the index approach. And McQuown gives credit to Myron for that. At the very birthplace of passive index investing, Jack Bogle tells you just invest in cheap indexes and keep costs low. But that's not what Myron said in his chapter. His focus was on risk. And his advice is that if you can manage risk carefully, you can actually add value. And the idea that risk is something which he calls volatility drag. Compound returns are, on average, less than arithmetic returns. The more volatile an investment is, the bigger the gap between the arithmetic return and the compound return. Now, why do you care about that? Well, because the amount of beer you get to buy is your compound return. It's not the average return. And so we care a lot about compound return, and volatility actually affects it. At Queens College in New York, and there was an economics class, so I decided to sit in on a couple of classes. The instructor, who is a graduate student, she was, I think, a TA, but she was giving the course. She gave an example of GDP at 100. She said, imagine that GDP goes down by 20%. So it goes down to 80. And then later on, during the course of the lecture, she says, well, now imagine that GDP goes up 20% from 80, and it goes up to 96. And a puzzled student in the class raised his hand and said, excuse me, professor, but um, why is it the case when you go down by 20% and then you go up by 20%, you don't get back to 100? And the TA scratched her head for a while. You know, she did a few calculations on the board. And she said, well, you know what? Economics is an inexact science, so <laughs> don't, don't worry about it. Just to make sure that everyone at home understands this point, the compounded return is multiplying 
1 plus r, the rate of return for the first period, times 1 plus r for the second period. In this case, it adds to 1.2 times 0.8, which is 0.96, for a two-period return of negative 4%. You start with 100, you end up with 96. The average return for this period is plus 20% and minus 20%. You average the two, you get zero. But the reality is you lost money. But that example, which Myron used about the asymmetry between ups and downs, is an instructive one because it says that when you have high volatility, you're not going to get back to 100. And so you have to be more and more cognizant of that kind of risk. It turns out, Myron, that actually is very relevant for some of my healthcare work because biotech stocks are among the most volatile out there. They have extraordinary binary risk. Either a clinical trial succeeds or it fails. And I can promise you that nobody in the biotech world is thinking about volatility drag. They should, but they don't. Our next question comes from John Cochran at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Hedging individual risk. The average investor owns a small business. Number one rule of investing is don't invest in your own company (laughs) beyond what you have to. Short it if you can. Don't invest in your own industry. Don't get a situation where you lose your job and your portfolio goes down at the same time. That seems obvious, but bringing that to practice has been very difficult. And I'm curious what you think about the opportunities to bring that to practice. Let's suppose we're talking about startups in the life sciences. They may have huge exposure to that sector, so they should take their assets and invest it in something else. Part of the reason that I think they don't is that people don't understand diversification as much as we would like them to. They simply don't have time to focus on anything else. I think certainly for the entrepreneurs that I've talked to in the life sciences, when you're doing a startup, someone once said that it's like chaining yourself to a tiger. You go where the tiger goes not the other way around. Attention bias. Most entrepreneurs that I speak to don't have financial advisors because they don't have a lot of financial wealth. They have a lot of paper wealth, but it's not liquid wealth, and they can't do anything with it. Entrepreneurs don't get the idea of diversifying because it is counter to the scientific culture of knowing what you're doing and sticking to that. Myron Scholes, do you want to add something to that? You have a great opportunity, which is very significant, then you want to over-concentrate. By definition, if you're building your portfolio in efficient markets, if you don't have skills in that, then basically diversification is a much better route to take, okay? So you have to take that into account, the reward as well as the uncertainty of the reward and how it fits into the rest of your portfolio. John Cochran has another question, this time from Myron Scholes. Go ahead, John slow-moving capital and time-varying risks. We know that risks go on sale at times. Like 2008, 2009, there were lots of people who were scared to death and selling like crazy. Other people recognize this is a buying opportunity. But just who is it who rightly should be selling like crazy in a time like that? And just who is it who's in a position buying bargains? They seem awfully reluctant to do it. We all have debts and we have a portfolio. Some of us have responsibilities to our family, some responsibilities to ourselves, retirement. That's a debt. 
all of us have levered portfolios. And when the markets go down, we should liquidate to reduce our risk so that we create more time diversification, as I said in my story. And you don't want to end up with huge risk at one point and no risk at another point as your value of your equity goes up if you didn't have those debts. So that means you need to have intermediaries to come in to buy assets when there's these rational sales by people who are forced to reduce because their risk increasing and their assets are disappearing and their liabilities are fixed. Who's going to step in? Most of the time, the very wealthy step in because they buy from the ones who need to liquidate and they come to a point where they say, I want to wait because I don't understand things. One of the things that you suggest in your chapter is to try to keep the volatility of your portfolio constant. Myron's not talking about risk parity. What he's talking about is over time, as volatility changes, you need to engage in certain asset allocation strategies to keep that volatility constant. I suspect that all the traders in this room have implemented stop-loss policies. Academics really don't think that they're useful. Why is it that all of these practitioners use stop-loss policies? It must be that their assumptions are different. And this is critical to Myron's observations. If you believe that asset returns are stationary processes. The mean and the variance never change over time. Then actually stop loss policies are totally a waste of time. The only reason to engage in a stop loss policy is if you believe that the parameters of your particular asset change over time. When volatility of an asset goes up for whatever reason, investors freak out and they take money out of that asset because they're not prepared for that volatility. As Myron pointed out, typically people are happy to take risk, but they want to know that the risk that they take is what they're getting. Now if the risk goes up by double, what do you do? You take some of your bet off. And those of you who are in prop trading, you know this because you're required to do it. You've got a, a limited risk budget. And so if the volatility doubles, you've got to take half of that off, right? What does that do? That drives down the stock price. And so there's a negative correlation between risk and reward. And so Myron's point about keeping volatility constant basically means that when volatility goes up, you're going to sell. When volatility goes down, you're going to buy. And so effectively, you're basically selling when the expected risk premium is lower and you're buying when it's higher. That turns out to actually add value. You can simulate that exact strategy of keeping the S&P constant by using a dynamic asset allocation strategy, and I think you'll find that it actually yields a higher return than buy and hold. The most common recommended portfolio for retail investors is typically 60% equities and 40% bonds. Does that make any sense? If you're a financial advisor and your bread and butter is making fees from retail investors, you have to be able to present things that they can understand. And 60-40, everybody can understand that. And I think that's part of the reason. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a first order approximation, and it's a particularly bad one, in my opinion, to Harry Markowitz and Bill Sharps and Jack Bogle's credit. In the book, they clearly say that you ought to hold these indexes they're not the best, but they're a pretty good approximation, and they're cheap. And it's less likely that you're going to get taken to the cleaners by unscrupulous financial advisors. That advice is probably not a bad first-order approximation if the idea is to keep it simple. One of the surprises that you highlight in your book, The Perfect Portfolio, is that several of the most important and novel papers in finance struggle to get published. Myron Scholz's paper on option pricing, Bill Sharp's article on CAPM. Why were these great articles of finance challenged to get published? I'm not an expert on the history of science, but 
My guess is that part of it has to do with the more original it is, the harder it is to get published. Because what you're doing is going against the grain and focusing on something that most other people either don't agree with or don't understand. And so it takes time for that to get accepted. You interviewed 12 great finance theorists and practitioners. Were there any common themes? Taxes, as I mentioned. That was the first thing out of virtually everybody's mouth. The second was the only free lunch was diversification. Sharp suggested that you diversify internationally. Harry Markowitz suggested that you consider different asset classes. Jeremy Siegel, throw some bonds in there. Marty Leibowitz was definitely big on adding bonds, inflation protection, and so on. For the masses, the idea was keep it simple, focus on breadth of investment opportunities, and then at the margins, you can play around with various kinds of innovations. Andy, thank you very much. We're now going to turn to John Levin, who is the dean of the Graduate School of Business at Stanford. I've asked John to talk about Myron's contributions to finance. First of all, Myron, thank you for the invitation to speak. When Myron asked me to come in and just say something on the occasion of his birthday, it caused me to spend time reflecting on the incredible impact that Myron has had on academic finance, on the practice of finance, on his colleagues, on his friends, on everyone that he has touched. And it is profound. I mean, there's few people in our line of work who've had that kind of impact on the world and on the people around them. I stumbled on this fantastic interview that he did a few years ago with Daryl Duffy. And if you have a chance, it's on GSB's website. It is just a wonderful video. I actually spent an hour watching it. And I just wanted to share with you three things that just came across so strongly in that video and really inspired me. First, we talk a lot around here about the relationship between theory and practice, the idea that you develop theories so they will get out and change practice, and then you look at what's going on in practice because that's what gives questions for theory. And that feedback loop is sort of at the center of academic finance and really of everything that we do in business schools. So I think everybody appreciates, if you had to say what discovery has had a profound impact on practice, Black Scholes would be at the top of absolutely everyone's list, or certainly in your top five. And what I hadn't appreciated, some of you may know this, was how much there was a two-way loop there. So one of the things that I learned in hearing Myron talk about his work and his career in this interview with Daryl was that, first of all, he started working with Fisher Black doing consulting for Wells Fargo in the late 1960s to figure out passive portfolios. It was a precursor, basically, to the portfolios Vanguard introduced in the mid-70s. And that got him working with Fisher Black. And the idea, the motivation to start working on option pricing actually came from students. It came from his students at MIT in a program called the Sloan Fellows Program. There's only three of these programs in the world. We have one of them here at the GSB. There's one at MIT and one in London. And the Sloan Fellows students, who are experienced professionals, were writing theses about trying to use the capital asset pricing model to price options using actual data that they had from OTC markets. It was an unsatisfying analysis because they were looking at terminal values and trying to discount them back and it just wasn't working. And so he realized this is not gonna cut it. And he got talking with Fisher and it was that practical problem that he was facing that led to the theory that led to the profound change on practice. 
What a cool example for all of us in academics to see how that dynamic works. The second thing that I took from this interview was Myron's theory about how research advances. There is this popular conception of great research, great innovation, great discovery, that it happens like eureka moments, just lightning strikes and all of a sudden special relativity or whatever it is, these incredible breakthroughs. And if you sort of looked at the history of finance and you said, what would be an example of a eureka moment? You put Myron pretty close to the top of that list as candidate for a eureka moment. It's actually hard to think of anything else that would quite rise to that level. In the Black-Scholes derivation, there is a eureka idea, which is that you think in small time increments and then you go forward to a terminal condition as opposed to starting at the end and trying to discount back. So in truth, there is a eureka moment. But he says you know, that's not actually how his discoveries worked, that his discoveries worked basically because there was like a milieu of ideas at Chicago, at MIT, at the time that he was getting involved in finance. And there was a form of connectivity. People were putting ideas together and remixing ideas, and things were just in the air. That is such a powerful idea, actually. And it really struck me, particularly after the experience we had in the last two and a half years, where we were all isolated and you didn't get any of that. Why is it that we're sitting in this room? Why is it that we have universities where people sit in buildings together and talk to each other and interact? It's precisely to foster that sense of connectivity that actually leads people to make really big innovations and breakthroughs. And so I just love that even if you took the most striking example of a Eureka moment, it actually wasn't that, it was connectivity. The last point that I would say about this interview that Myron gave was how strongly Myron's defining characteristic comes through, extraordinary intellectual curiosity. Myron is just fascinated by ideas and his enthusiasm is electric, it's contagious, and I think everyone here has worked with him in different capacities, has gotten to experience that, admired it, and envied it. And it's actually reflected in the format of this event, which is pretty unusual for an 80th birthday party. Uh, <laughs> to have a book club that seems to be organized like an academic seminar, which is uh, a special thing. Byron, I really appreciate the chance to, to get to come in and to celebrate you and to have this event here at the GSB and admire you so much. So thanks for giving us this opportunity to do this. Thank you, Thank you very much, John, for coming in and uh, saying that. Our next guest is Myron Scholz's old business partner and my very good friend, Victor Agani, who currently runs a wealth and investment advisory firm called Elm. Go ahead, Vic. I'm going to talk about a critical, but I believe underappreciated aspect of investing. Investing involves two decisions. There's the what and there's the how much. Nearly 100% of financial market commentary is dedicated to the what to buy or sell question. And in my opinion, not enough attention is paid to the how much should I buy or sell question. I'm going to explain why I think the how much question is so important, at least as important as the what question. I can tell you from my experience as a founding partner of LTCM, the hedge fund that had quite a wonderful beginning, but not such a wonderful end, that the how much decision can be critically important. You can get the what decision right, but if you get the how much decision wrong, you're out of business. On the other hand, you can get the what decision wrong, 
But if you get the how much one right, you're fine, and you carry on. At LTCM, I think we got the what decision largely right, but not so much with the how much decision. It turns out that I wasn't alone in underappreciating the importance of the how much question. Seven years ago, we ran an experiment where we went to groups of financially sophisticated young people, both at universities and at banks, and we offered them to play a game where we gave them twenty-five dollars and let them bet on a coin that was biased to land on heads with a sixty percent probability. After half an hour of flipping the coin, they could keep however much money they had grown the twenty-five dollars into, subject to a cap of two hundred and fifty dollars. You can play the game on our Elm Wealth website if you want. There's a link to it in the upper right-hand corner of our research page. We get like a hundred people each week coming there to play it. We published a paper on the results, which were crazy. Twenty-five percent of the people actually went bust, and only twenty percent reached the two hundred and fifty dollar cap. It seemed to us that these young, financially trained people just didn't really have a toolkit for how to think about this problem. So, how should we answer the question of how much? Well, one way that I like to answer the question of how much is to say that you should make your choice such that it maximizes your personal expected utility. In economics, utility is a measure of the happiness or satisfaction that we get from spending our wealth. If you're like most people, the more wealth you have, the less of an increase in utility you get from each extra dollar of wealth. That is. You have a marginally decreasing utility of wealth. That makes you normal, and it makes you risk-averse. By contrast, having a marginally increasing utility of wealth—that is, wanting more wealth the more you have of it—is usually viewed as an abnormality, maybe even bordering on addiction. The decision that maximizes your expected utility can be very different compared to the choice that maximizes your expected wealth. For instance, in the 60/40 bias coin flipping experiment that we did, the strategy that would maximize your expected wealth is to bet 100% of your wealth on each flip of the coin. That's the wealth maximizing thing to do. It doesn't seem like it because you're almost definitely going to go bust. It's absurd, and nobody would do it. But that's the wealth maximizing thing to do because there's a tiny probability of winning every flip. And the expected wealth from that outcome is higher than the expected wealth from any other strategy you could follow. By contrast, we get a much more sensible result when we look for the decision that maximizes our expected utility. For people with typical levels of risk aversion, and we've done some experiments and surveys that give us an idea of what's typical, what maximizes your expected utility is betting something like 10% of your wealth on each flip. I'm guessing that some of you will have heard of the Kelly criterion. A formula derived by John Kelly, a researcher at Bell Labs in 1956, that determines the optimal size for a bet. The Kelly bet size is found by maximizing the expected value of the logarithm of your wealth, which is equivalent to maximizing the expected geometric growth rate of your wealth. Because the Kelly criterion leads to higher wealth compared to any other strategy in the long run, and by long run I mean the very, very long run. It is considered by some to be superior to the approach of maximizing expected utility. I view it more as simply a special case of expected utility maximization, and one which most people who don't have an infinite horizon find way too risky. In the case of a 60/40 biased coin, the Kelly bet would be to bet 20% of wealth on each flip of a coin, a sizing which we have found very few people would find optimal. 
That said, it would still have been a better approach to playing our experimental game than any strategy actually pursued by our 60 subjects. Moving away from flipping a biased coin and a little more into the real world, the general answer to the question of how much risk to take is that it should depend on the expected return and risk of the investment being considered and on your personal level of risk aversion. Under a stylized set of assumptions, a simple formula can be derived, which has become known as the Merton share, in honor of Bob Merton, who, as far as I know, is the first to derive it. The formula is the fraction of your wealth to invest in a risky asset is equal to the expected return of the risky investment above that of a safe investment divided by the risk of the asset expressed as standard deviation of returns but squared and also divided by your personal degree of risk aversion. The formula will be more memorable if we take it for a spin. So let's see how it works for the case of a typical investor who is deciding how much of his portfolio to put in a stock market index fund and how much to put in a safe asset like T-bills or tips. Let's say that he believes the expected return of stocks is 5% more per annum than the return on the safe alternative, and that he views the risk of stocks as being about 20% a year. For his personal risk aversion, we'll use a value of 2, which is the degree of risk aversion that would have him optimally betting 10% of his wealth on each flip of the 60-40 biased coin. So the fraction of his portfolio he should invest in stocks is equal to the excess expected return, 5%, divided by the product of stock market risk of 20%, but squared, so that's 0.2 times 0.2 or 0.04, and his personal degree of risk aversion, which we said is 2. So we get 0.05 divided by 0.04 times 2. So that's 0.05 divided by 0.08, which is 62.5%. So under these assumptions, this investor should want to have 62.5% of his portfolio in stocks and 37.5% in the safe asset. Now, this just happens to be close to the typical 60-40 stock bond allocation that's been so popular with investors over the years. But it's important to realize that this approach gives different answers as the expected return and risk of the stock market change over time, which they do. For example, what if stocks become 50% riskier and so you believe that 30% is the right number to use for the prospective risk of the stock market. Let's also say that in this case, stocks have gone down in price quite a bit, such that now you're thinking the expected excess return looking forward has increased from 5% to 6%. Well, applying the Merton share rule of thumb, you'd get 0.06 divided by the product of 0.3 squared, which is 0.09, and the risk aversion parameter of two, so that's 0.06 divided by 0.18, which is equal to 33%, a little more than half of the 62.5% allocation that we get with returns of 5% and risk of 20%. This expected utility framework gets more powerful and useful when you start to apply it over many years of your lifetime, which is known as the problem of lifetime consumption and portfolio choice. So what kind of questions lend themselves to expected utility analysis? Well, any time where you're trading off expected money versus expected risk and you need to put a price on that risk, expected utility is the tool to reach for. For instance, if you have a low basis asset that you don't really want to hold, but you also don't want to pay capital gains tax from selling it, how do you think about how much of that to liquidate? More generally, how do taxes affect your asset allocation given, as Myron reminds us, that the government is our partner in profits but not losses? 
What kind of investment approach makes more sense, buy and hold, or a dynamic approach that you vary with changes in the expected excess return and risk of investments? The expected utility perspective tells you that the dynamic approach makes more sense. What about options? Do they make sense in your portfolio? What kind of and how much insurance makes sense to buy? House insurance, life insurance, health insurance. The decision to buy a home versus renting one can also be a risk versus return trade-off. How much do you need to have in the bank to retire? How much can you spend in retirement? Should you buy an annuity? How about bequest decisions? Giving money away sooner to your kids or charities is good because it's growing and you're getting tax benefits sooner rather than later, but there's more risk in doing that too. Given the power, flexibility, and logic of using expected utility to guide our decisions under uncertainty, you might be wondering why you haven't heard of these ideas from your financial advisor or read about them in the Wall Street Journal. During the break, I was talking with David Krebs, a pretty famous economics professor here at Stanford, who's a real expert on this whole area, and his take on expected utility was, it's too complicated. Then there's the behavioral finance crowd who say that's not the way that people actually make decisions. But what we're concerned with and trying to figure out is how should people make decisions? I and my colleagues have been trying to make these ideas accessible to people in practical ways through our work at Elm, a wealth advisor and investment manager I founded about 11 years ago. We use low-cost index funds and ETFs, dynamically adjust portfolios to changing market conditions, and keep fees and taxes as low as possible. And we've built a bunch of tools and calculators to help people with the big decisions they have to make too. I'm also writing with my business partner and Elm CEO, James White, a book that's gonna come out hopefully early next year called The Missing Billionaires, A Guide to Better Financial Decisions that's focused on this topic as well. This expected utility perspective of making your financial choices to maximize the expected utility you get from spending and giving away your wealth over your lifetime is entirely consistent with the whole discussion we just enjoyed with Andy Lowe about his new book, In Search of the Perfect Portfolio. Expected utility tells us that you shouldn't expect the market to give you extra return without taking more risk. It also agrees with Andy's conclusions that diversification matters, taxes matter, fees matter, and the long-term real spending power of our wealth matters. And expected utility also agrees with the main idea that Myron contributed to the Perfect Portfolio book, that size matters in the sense of how much risk is the right amount to take, and sometimes size matters a lot. Thanks, Vic. Our next speaker is Bruce Tuckman. Bruce is the former chief economist of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. He's also my former colleague in Salm Brothers Fixed Income Proprietary Trading Department and one of my closest friends. Go ahead, Bruce. Well, it's Myron's weekend, and Larry gave me six minutes, so I thought I would do six derivative myths in six minutes. So myth number one, that derivatives are weapons of mass destruction invented in the last 50 years by evil geniuses like Myron. So there are two things about that. One, derivatives have been around for an extremely long time. We have evidence of forward contracts on wooden planks and on barley in 19th and 17th centuries BC. We have contracts for differences, which we call futures, in Renaissance Europe. We have a very active stock options market in 17th century Amsterdam. And we have, in 19th century German books, payoff diagrams for options, like we see call options and spreads. 
Secondly, derivatives are used for legitimate business purposes. Some of the applications I teach in my class, airlines using commodity futures to hedge the cost of jet fuel, pensions hedging their liabilities with interest rate swaps, life insurers investing using CDS instead of corporate bonds, asset managers hedging foreign investments with FX futures, structured products which include equity options in order to limit losses. And the last thing I'll say about this myth is a study over the last 20 years, S&P 1500 companies, more than half use derivatives, goes from 20% of the smaller companies and 90% in the largest quintile of assets. All right, myth number two, that derivatives played a major role in the financial crisis of 2007-2009. So that's not right in my view. The crisis was a result of leverage mostly in non-derivative mortgage products and mortgage-backed securities. Interest rate swaps and credit default swaps on corporates had nothing, no significant role in the crisis. It is true that CDS on mortgages had a role and did cause losses, but they were very small relative to the non-derivative losses. The only significant exception to this is AIG, which wrote CDS. It sold protection on mortgage-backed securities, but I'd say this was not a large part in the crisis. First of all, AIG's failure was equally due to its securities lending business as to its CDS. Second, by the time AIG had failed, we've already had countrywide bear, IndyMac, Fannie, Freddie, and Lehman, so it's not like AIG could cause the crisis. Myth number three. There are $600 trillion of globally outstanding OTC derivatives. This is on the Bank of International Settlements website, that that's the size of that market, and it's just a wild exaggeration. When you buy a bond and sell a bond, you've got nothing left. But when you do over-the-counter derivatives, you usually take a position derivative, and then you cancel out the risk with a similar but not identical derivative. And all of these statistics that you read in the newspapers just add up all of these amounts and don't offset the risk. At the CFTC, we had all the data of everybody swap transactions. If you look at that universe that we look at, 267 trillion notional outstanding of interest rate swaps, if you count that correctly, falls to about 18 trillion of five-year bond equivalents. And if you think about that, the treasury market is 25 trillion, the corporate bond market is 15 trillion, so it's a reasonably sized market. Myth number four, banks use derivatives and interest rate swaps to take big bets on interest rates. So that's not right. If you look at the data of every bank's positions, the interest rate risk that the banks have in interest rate swaps is basically 0% of equity. It's really nothing. More than half of interest rate swaps used by banks is to facilitate the customer loan business. So that's a big use of swaps for banks. Myth number five, interest rate swaps are over-the-counter swaps are customized to meet client needs. So there's a big idea that the reason why we need over-the-counter markets and swaps, as opposed to futures, which are so liquid and so easy to trade, swaps are needed because they're customized for customers. And this is just not true. Dealers have said this for a long time. And when they look at the data, from 60 to 80% of IRS notional amount could be replaced with futures. It's so standardized. That's something we might want to think about adjusting. Myth number six, that CCP's central counterparties basically eliminate systemic risk. You've got a central counterparty, it stands between, you have derivative on one side, derivative on the other side, and instead of facing each other, you face the central counterparty. So why is that not really eliminating all risk? First of all, we've really put our eggs in one basket, right? If you look at the London Clearinghouse, it's just enormous relative to any other CCPs. So we've got this one place we've really got to watch enormously carefully. And secondly, I just want to tie it into what happened earlier this week in the UK with pension funds. So it used to be before Dodd-Frank, that a bank could make a decision, hey, this is a safe counterparty. For example, I've got a pension fund. It's got liabilities. It has some corporate bonds that receive fixed and swaps to hedge outsets and liabilities. That pension fund is really safe. I'm not going to charge the margin. That part of the derivative world, in my view, is very safe. What happened earlier this week is that rates went up dramatically. 
the value of the liabilities fall, the value of the assets fall, so that's good, the pension's still hedged, but they've received fixed on swap, so they've got a loss on swap that they've got to now make margin calls. But they're not getting any margin from their liabilities going down. In the guise of reducing counterparty risk in the system, we've introduced all this liquidity risk that was big enough for the UK to have to intervene. That's it, six minutes. Bruce, that was an incredible six-minute performance and a model for the podcast. Let's move on to the man of the hour, my old boss, Nobel Prize winner Myron Scholes, who will discuss how to make the optimal portfolio with a constraint to minimize carbon emissions. Go ahead, Myron. Thank you for your thoughts and explanations of your research interests. I obviously enjoyed John Levin's comments. The comments of Tuckman, Hagani, and Lowe were wonderful. Andy mentioned the importance of empirical finance. As a young professor, I knew that the combination of theory and empirical research would make for a stronger finance research agenda than one alone. The same is true of the marriage of ideas from practice and academics. Ideas lead to new theories or augmentation of old theories. Empirical research tests theory and models and leads to new or augmented theory. Andy is correct. That is what led me to spend time to reinvigorate the Center for Research and Security Prices and build huge data files of stock price and accounting information that became so important to finance. We were the first big data proponents. Their discussions augmented my belief that the dynamics of innovation is to make processes faster, more individualized, and more flexible under uncertainty. We move from a static, hardwired, hardware approach to a more flexible software approach that changes as we learn more through testing our models and approaches. This is the major force in finance. I was going to discuss my paper written with my colleague, Ashwin Allencar, on carbon emissions and asset management. I will only have time to summarize its findings. Two major current approaches that portfolio managers use to be active in reducing CO2 emissions given the ESG movement in Europe and the United States are first, exclude firms or underweight firms with poor ESG scores such as coal, oil and gas producers from their portfolios. The hope is that this increases the cost of capital to these firms by reducing their stock prices but not to a clear end result. Engage with firms is the second approach and cajole them to decarbonize and reduce carbon emissions. Passive investment managers take this approach for they are constrained to stay at the benchmark, which includes carbon emitters. This approach has vague and uncertain outcomes. We propose and model a third approach. The portfolio manager optimizes the portfolio as usual to select investments to maximize the expected return in the portfolio for a given level of risk or given objective, such as a passive objective, and then buy carbon credits to offset the carbon emissions of the companies in the portfolio. The portfolio is carbon neutral and not the contents of the portfolio. The market prices of carbon credits exist and are traded in an active secondary market. Market prices determine the cost to make the portfolio net carbon neutral. At today's prices to offset the carbon emission of the S&P 500 portfolio, such as the Vanguard ETF, would cost about seven basis points. 
This is a known cost for less developed market portfolios. The cost would be upwards to 35 basis points at current carbon credit prices. The portfolio manager would offer two portfolios in our view, one optimized but without any carbon offsets at all, and the other a clone that differs from the first portfolio and it buys credits to entirely offset the carbon emissions of the common portfolio for a known cost. Investors then would choose a convex combination of these two spanning portfolios to satisfy their own utility or preferences as to decarbonization. Given the cost of credit and the prices that they are willing to pay to reduce carbon emissions. This is the first best solution. Firms move to decarbonize by producing their own carbon offsets called white carbon by changing production methods, inventions, etc. This takes time and it will not occur instantaneously. These new innovations are a growth engine for the global economy. Other firms might invest in producing offsets they sell as carbon credits to others by planting forests or expanding the use of plants in the ocean. They're green carbon and blue carbon credits that compete with white carbon in providing a reduction in the global CO2 emission landscape. These credits sell in the over-the-counter credit markets. Although a young market, over 350 million metric tons of carbon credits were sold in the voluntary credit market in 2021, that theoretically would neutralize $4.3 trillion investment in the S&P 500 portfolio. Although carbon credits is only a band-aid as the transition to a greener economy moves ahead, it is a necessary band-aid, will slow down the bleeding, and is a great alternative until we achieve our ultimate goal of carbon neutrality or decarbonization. When the price of carbon credits increases, more credits are produced, and companies are incentivized to move more quickly to decarbonize. Excluding firms is not costless or cost-effective. Constraints are costly if they have value showing up in loss returns or increased portfolio volatility because of reduced diversification. The annual loss return in the S&P 500 ESG portfolio was over 1% a year, less than the unconstrained S&P 500 and with higher volatility. Exclusion is uncertain and of unknown benefits, and it is costly. Portfolio managers alternatively can build carbon-neutral portfolios with known costs because the market prices of carbon credits exist. They can assess and manage the credits that they acquire for their investors. Investors will know the costs and will assess their own benefits to reduce CO2 emissions of their portfolios and do so cost-effectively when compared to other alternatives. Why? Because carbon credits are priced in the market. This, in our view, is an alternative that should be considered by portfolio managers and has superior outcomes than either the current approach of excluding firms or cajoling managers to reduce carbon credits. Thanks to Andy Lowe, Jonathan Levin, Victor Agani, Bruce Tuckman, and Myron Scholes for joining us today. If you missed last week's session, please check it out. Our speaker was Robert Sapolsky, 
who is a professor of biology and neurology at Stanford. Robert is the author of numerous books, including Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers and Behave. Robert believes that you have no free will. Your behavior is dictated by a complex combination of factors that include your genes, hormones, glucose levels, the environment, and epigenetic events. Robert argued that there's no little man in your head making decisions. It's just a complex mess. Our speakers next week will be Stanford economist Paul Oyer, who will discuss his new book, An Economist Goes to the Game, How to Throw Away 580 Million Bucks, and Other Surprising Insights from the Economics of Sports. Paul will discuss which sports your kids should play, why South Koreans dominate women's golf, and when should Michael Jordan take the last shot or pass the ball to another player. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Please encourage your friends to join the What Happens Next community by signing up for our free weekly updates about upcoming podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I would like to thank our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.